Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Uh, have a chance here in, in a bit to sing some more together and to reflect on, on God's mercy for us. Oddly, at least I think it is odd, uh, I am on Instagram to learn things. And I didn't know that I was on Instagram as an educational resource. I don't remember why I signed up in the first place, other than we probably had some youth or something who were on it. Uh, I, I don't know, but it turns out that I'm on Instagram to learn things. So if I don't follow you on Instagram, uh, that's because I only follow uh, people I work with and married to or parents and a bunch of people I don't know who teach me things. That's, a, that's it. And th that's, I think, weird. But I'm learning all kinds of things. I'm learning Enneagram things. I'm learning creativity things. Uh, I'm uh, learning language things. I did not know until recently how much I, I enjoy learning about the origin of words. And, and we'll do the like Hebrew-Greek word nerding out thing in a minute. But uh, I, I follow a, a couple of people on Instagram just because they have really interesting information about where words come from. Uh, for instance, I follow this guy named named Abraham, who's a middle-aged man from Minnesota. And Abraham uh, is teaching me all kinds of things about where different words come from. Uh, for example, uh, he uh, traced the word soccer and where soccer comes from. So here, here you go. We're all going to learn something this morning, right? Because I found this interesting, so now you will too. Okay, so soccer or something like it has existed for millennia. It's different places in the world. But in the mid-19th century, 1850s, 60s-ish, it started to be codified into a, a sport with agreed-upon rules and that kind of thing in Britain, so mid-19th century, okay? And they started calling it football, but the problem was there was this also the sport called rugby football. So you had rugby football and you needed a different name for this one. So it, it was association football. Okay, so you got rugby football, association football. All right, so hold on to that one. The other thing you need to know is that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it became very cool with the cool kids in Britain to start adding er to the end of words. Like you'd shorten it and add an er to it. So a lecture became a lecker. And breakfast became Brecker. And my personal favorite, I'm not sure why, but the Prince of Wales became the Prager Wagger. Now, <laughs> I've, I have no idea, but it's a fantastic phrase, the Prager Wagger. Anyway, uh, and, and, uh, again, I'm not making this up. You can research this for yourself in the London Times if you'd like to. They did a whole article about these cool kids and their slang and their shortening words and adding an, an er to it. So over time, association football became a sock, became sock er, soccer. That's how we got that word. So the British can be mad at us for not calling it football if they want, but we just stole their word. Now, maybe they should be mad at us for that. I don't know. But anyway, that's where soccer came from. Now, it turns out that Abraham, this middle-aged man from Minnesota, uh, also grew up in what he describes as a fundamentalist Christian home. And he has fully rejected any semblance of belief in any of that. And he will talk about it. And he will go on rants really well thought out rants about the oppressiveness that he sees in religion, 
uh, about the uh, burden he feels like religion is on people. And it turns out that I'm following him for that too. I I didn't know it. I, I thought I was signing up to just learn about interesting words and where they came from. But it's really good for me to be hearing his perspective, to grow in my compassion for where he is coming from and what he has experienced. And so I, I learn things about interesting words and, and I smile and I hear his rants and his heartbreak of what he experienced and, and it is heartbreaking for me. Recently, he uh, posted a video telling a little bit of his story, mostly so he could share part of somebody else's. He talked about how, for him, the first time he walked away from Christianity, he said it was really, really hard because he still believed all of it. He didn't doubt anything in his early 20s when he walked away. He just didn't feel like he could possibly belong to this Christianity thing. And he told a story of reading recently online about a young man in a very similar situation, a young man who's currently in his early 20s, who grew up in a self-described fundamentalist Christian environment. And he said, he posted online, I'm not sure what to do because I believe that there is a God. I believe in the things I've been taught. But I also know that I'm supposed to feel a certain way about Jesus, and I don't feel this certain way. And I know that I'm not good enough. And because I don't feel this certain way, I feel like God has rejected me. And because I'm not perfect, and I can't seem to figure out how to be perfect, I feel like God has rejected me, and he hasn't chosen me, and I'm going to hell, and I don't know what to do because I still believe this. But why would I stick around and believe something where I'm getting sent to hell? How heartbreaking that a young man who grew up in a faith whose holy book teaches that there is no power, no nothing that can separate us from the love of God, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, would grow up believing that he has to be perfect to be loved. And that because he can't seem to figure out how to be perfect, he must be unlovable. None of us have our stuff together. None of us are perfect. We are at best everyday people making everyday mistakes, trying to follow Jesus every day. Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly forgave the imperfect and condemned the judgmental. And yet, here we are, where this young man posts online his story. And this story that I think should at least move, if not break, every Christian heart. According to Abraham, as he told the story, wherever this guy posted it, he was met with comment after comment from other Christians, from his brothers and sisters in Christ. Comments challenging whether he ever really believed in the first place. Telling him he must not be smart enough to figure it out. Condemning him for his doubt. He's trying to post, I don't know what to do. And instead of being invited in, he is pushed away. And Abraham, this middle-aged man from Minnesota that I follow on Instagram, said, I really hope he finds his way to freedom. 
And he was clear. He said, if, if any of you who are listening are, are Christians and you're finding happiness in that, great, I hope you stay. And I hope you continue to be happy. But for this young man, I hope he finds the freedom he's looking for. How sad <laughs> that a religion whose savior said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the early church and the holy book teaches for the Lord is the spirit. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom that he would think he has to get out of all of that in order to find freedom because of the way he's been treated and taught. And when he posts about it in some sort of online community, instead of being met with an invitation into freedom, he is met with condemnation and pushback or more accurately, a push away. And sometimes I think uh, we are more heartbroken over the decline of the numbers in the church in general than we are over the actual people walking away. That we, we hear a young man's story like this and we go, okay, that's one of the 60% of Gen Z who has grown up in the church who is walking away. And we freak out about the 60% and the number. And I'm worried that we're more heartbroken over what it means for the decline of the church's power than actually heartbroken for the people who are actually walking away, who have been broken because of what they have been incorrectly taught and led to believe. And yet, we follow a savior who taught us, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Can I actually get you to say this out loud with me? Can we just read this together? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, I'll also say that recently on Instagram, I saw a video from somebody who has grown up in church uh, in her 20s, still going to church. She said uh, she wanted to name the five most awkward things uh, that happen in a church gathering. And one of those top five was the pastor insisting on people saying things out loud. So apologize for doing that. See, I'm learning things on Instagram and then just ignoring some of them, uh, apparently. But we're working on memorizing scripture together in this season. So uh, we'll, we'll repeat this one uh, a couple of, of times. Now, what does this phrase about mercy have to do with statistics and people? Well, mercy here means compassion. Uh, and I like this definition. It's actually the first definition that came up when I Googled uh, mercy, but I think it's a pretty good definition of uh, the English word as we use it. The mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. It is compassion or forgiveness shown to somebody that you could punish or harm instead. Mercy. Again, a good definition of the English word. And I think pretty close to what Jesus meant, which is, this is where we get to the word nerd part. Okay? We translate the New Testament into English from Greek. Jesus likely talking to the group of people he was talking to, which we'll get back to in a moment, he probably wasn't speaking Greek. He was probably speaking Aramaic, uh, connected to Hebrew. He probably, for mercy, used the Hebrew word chesed, which I'm not going to say quite correctly, but chesed. Uh, William Barclay, in his Bible study commentary, says this about the word chesed. 
said it does not mean only to sympathize with a person in the popular sense of the term. And it does not mean simply to feel sorry for some in trouble. Has said, mercy means the ability to get right inside the other person's skin until we can see things with his eyes, think things with his mind, and feel things with his feelings. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who can get right inside another person's skin until we see things with their eyes, think things with their mind, and feel with their feelings. So my own commentary on this verse, if I can, blessed are those who see people as people. Blessed are those who see people as people. A person is a person, not a statistic, not that thing they did to you, not their cardboard sign, not their vote or their argument. A person is a person made in the image of God, a person that every Jesus follower is called to love. Can you say this again with me? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, this is kind of a golden rule kind of statement, right? Do to others what you would like them to do to you. Show mercy, you'll be shown mercy. Uh, In this list of uh, Beatitudes that we are going through in this season as we head toward uh, Easter, this list of blessings or or congratulatory kinds of statements, uh, in this list that we find in Matthew 5, uh, this is the only reciprocal one that you give something and you get the same in in return. Again, kind of a a golden rule kind of statement. And and you may not be aware, the golden rule is also a teaching of Jesus. Do to others what you would like them to do to you. Now, there are many philosophies of Jesus that are baked into our society at this point from just thousands or hundreds and hundreds of years of, of building uh, these kinds of things into how we see the world. And this one is so baked in. Like We teach this in public elementary schools where we're not intending to teach anything uh, Jesus-like, and, and, and yet we teach this, this golden rule. And I think it may be so baked into how we understand the foundations of a productive society that we miss how counterintuitive and unnatural this is, and I think maybe miss how infrequently it is actually applied, we naturally operate the other way. I will show you compassion if you have shown compassion to me. And if you don't, I will use that as an excuse and a reason to not have to extend myself to you. I think it's why it's so important that we show compassion to our kids. And you maybe haven't thought about it this way, but it's, it's important that we show compassion to our children so that they see how we engage with others in a compassionate way. To recognize that the two-year-old isn't actually trying to ruin your life, that the 12-year-old isn't either, that the, the crying and the screaming because they don't have any words, well, if I didn't have any words and I was upset, I would probably also cry and scream. That, that thing that you want to roll your eyes at the teenager who typically rolls her eyes at you because she's so upset about such and such boy in her math class or whatever it may be, 
to go, okay, but if that's how I saw the world, I would be upset about that too. And in fact, if I can think back far enough, I was upset about equally ridiculous things to show some compassion, to be able the best we can to crawl inside their skin and see what they see and think what they think and feel what they are feeling so that they know that this is how we engage in relationship with compassion because it doesn't come naturally to us. It doesn't come naturally to our children. There's a reason we teach it in schools all the way up because it's not the natural way we do things and yet is so important to how we engage with one another. This is, once again, Jesus taking something that we understand in the world, how the world seems to work, and flipping it on its head. So don't wait for others to be merciful. You go first. So let's talk about being merciful. And I, I want to break this down using the first couple of words of that definition of mercy that we looked at earlier, compassion and forgiveness. So let's start by defining compassion. And if you Google define compassion, you will come up with about a million slightly different definitions. So I'm going to use the definition from Compassion International. Uh, I like this one. Uh, compassion means to recognize the suffering of others and then take action to help. To recognize the suffering of others and then take action to help to recognize it, to see it, to see them as a person suffering. Not a statistic, not a cardboard sign, not a tantrum, but a person in need. Now, please note, nowhere in this definition does it say that compassion excuses the action. To show somebody compassion does not mean that you have to suddenly be okay with the things that they have done. To, to crawl inside the way that they think and feel may very well help us see their perspective and understand why they would do the thing that they are doing, but it doesn't mean that we have to suddenly be okay with everything that they did. If you're kid destroys their room with a baseball bat because you took their phone away, uh, you don't have to excuse that behavior. And I just want to clarify, because that sounds like an oddly specific example. I did get that off the internet. That is not my own children. Okay. Just I'll be careful. And we will talk about, uh, we'll talk about forgiveness in, in a second. If your political opponent burns your business down or threatens your senator, you don't have to suddenly be okay with their choices and actions. And yet, Jesus, the one we follow, the one we model our lives after, has called us to be merciful, to be compassionate and forgiving, to do our very best to see them, see their thoughts, their feelings, and their perspective, to recognize people as people. Of course, not just to recognize it. Jesus does not say those who recognize will be recognized, but to actually take action to help. Jesus is looking at a crowd of people who, as we've talked about in previous weeks, 
is the overlooked, the outcast, the misfits in society. Many of them, if not most of them, at the bottom of society's hierarchy. They don't feel seen or cared for. And yet he is asking them, calling them, telling them to see others, to care for others, to go first. Not because they've been treated with compassion, but because it is the way of the kingdom of God that Jesus is inviting them into. He is inviting them into a kingdom where the merciful receive mercy, where we love as God the king has loved us with compassion. Seeing, meeting the needs of the people around us. And the point is to meet the need, to see them, to recognize that they are not a statistic because statistics are problems that need to be solved. People have needs that need to be met. If we turn people into statistics, now they are something for us to solve, not someone for us to love. So we recognize them as people. Similarly, I think we have to see people as people in order to give others the forgiveness that they need. Because if that person is only defined by what they did or said to you or about you, then your attempts at forgiveness are only going to be about the action, not the person. Which I think makes more sense in my head than when I say it out loud. So let's start with the definition of forgiveness and go from there. Forgiveness We'll define it this way today. is choosing not to hold someone's sin against them anymore. And if you don't like the word sin, feel free to substitute mistake, hurt, action that hurt them or hurt others. Forgiveness is choosing not to hold someone's sin against them anymore. Because when you're choosing to hold their sin against them, what you're really doing is defining them by that action. You're defining them not by who they are as a person, but by what they did to you. And to see them as a person means to recognize the humanity beyond the action. And again, I do want to point out that this definition as well does not say anything about excusing the action. You don't have to suddenly be okay with it. And sometimes we talk about forgiveness that way. That forgiveness means you just forget it was a problem. That you just minimize it or dismiss the hurt. But forgiveness doesn't say anything about excusing the action. It doesn't even necessarily mean that you reconcile and put everything together. But when you're holding someone's sin against them, essentially what you're doing is you're saying, okay, we were even and square. Let's just say our relationship started there, but you said something or you did something and it created this negative and, and from, from where we were at zero, we're now in this negative space where this, this thing is weighing me down because you said something, you did something that hurt. And there's now this weight in my life that I'm holding on to. And what I need you to do if I'm holding this against you is I need you to make this right. I need you to somehow make up for this hurt. I need you to make things square again. And I'm gonna keep holding on to this thing until you come along and you make it right 
Or sometimes we can decide that it'll be fine if I'm at a negative as long as I or somebody else puts you at a negative too. If I can't make it right, if it won't be fair or just, then I will just hope that you hurt the same way that I do. And now we're just in a battle of who hurts the most. That's what happens when we hold somebody's sin against them. It creates this this debt, this negative that we need somebody to make right. And we're waiting for somebody to make it right. And to forgive somebody is to simply say, you don't have to make it right anymore. Doesn't mean that what they did was okay. It doesn't mean that that, uh, all of a sudden you're going to go, I'm going to give you every opportunity you want to create more negatives and more hurt in my life. It's just to say, I'm not going to wait around for you to make this right. I'm going to make it right. I'm just going to say we are at zero again. Is forgiving whatever it is that you feel like they owe you, forgiving that debt and, and, and saying we're even, we're good. Not because you, you made it so, but because I have the power to decide that we're even. And so I forgive you as God has forgiven me. Now, I think this can be particularly hard when we feel like somebody owes us something that they can't actually give us. When we feel like our parent owes us a new childhood, well, they can't give us a different childhood. It may be what it feels like we need to make that right, but but they can't. And, And while it would seem that when we recognize that, we would just go, oh, Well, okay, then since they can't give that to me, I'll just decide we're at zero. But a lot of times, especially the longer we've been holding on to a hurt, the harder it is to just say, okay, then we'll just be at zero. Sometimes it's being angry at someone because he owes you the last 20 years because things have hurt so much. Or... or, Maybe she owes you a, a new conversation because she said something weeks or months or years ago that hurt and it's just hanging on you. And no amount of I'm sorry takes those words back. And you have to make the choice to say, you don't owe me. I forgive you. I'm not okay with it. I'm not sure I want to trust you with that level of conversation again, but I'll work on it. We're at zero. Okay. It is actually within our power, each and every person's power, to forgive the debt. And for those of us who are following Jesus, who have had our debt forgiven, who have been brought to zero, to justified and even with God, it is our calling to say, well, I will forgive you as Jesus forgave me. We are called to see people as people. Not to define them by what they have done, but to go, you are a person just like me, made in the image of God and loved by God just as much as I am. And whether you believe that or not, I want to show you the forgiveness of God. How he has forgiven me, I will forgive you. We are called to see people as people and meet their needs. Their needs for food and warmth and love and forgiveness. So, You say this again with me. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I want to talk briefly about this last part. They will be shown mercy. Without over-spiritualizing this or over-promising anything, your God, 
your maker, the lover of your soul, sees you, really sees you. There's a great story about this uh, in the Old Testament of Scripture, right near the very beginning in the middle of the book of Genesis, where God comes to a man and his wife named uh, Abram and Sarai, and he says, I am going to uh, give you a child. And I know you are too old to have children, uh, but I'm going to give you one anyway. And for the two of them in their society, this would have been really significant for Sarai because uh, her value in her society was tied to whether or not she could have a child. And she had sort of at that point given up on having value. And for Abram, he wanted uh, somebody to pass down whatever uh, he had to pass down uh, to this person to continue a a legacy. And God said, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give the two of you a child. And through this child, I'm going to make a nation. And through that nation, I am going to bless the world. So they try for a little while to have a child and Sarai is still not getting pregnant. And so Sarai says, well, okay, here's the thing. We know God promised it. So there's going to be a child, but apparently it's not mine. So here is my my servant, my slave, essentially, Hagar. uh, Sleep with her and then God's promise will be fulfilled uh, through through you and, and Hagar. Now, keep in mind, one, that these are the faithful people God has promised to bless the world through. And this is their reaction uh, to go, well, uh, I know God promised it to, to Abram and Sarai, but, but this doesn't seem to be working. So I believe in God's promise, so we'll make it happen, right? Okay, God has promised this thing, so apparently uh, I need to make it happen my way. Not that any of us have ever done that before. Uh, and for the record, telling this story last night, and even my 10-year-old is shaking her head like, these people. Anyway, what's wrong with it? Anyway, so this is the solution, right? Here, here's Hagar. Sleep with her. This will uh, solve the, the situation. So I want to pick up the story from there. This is uh, Genesis 16, starting in verse 4. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Not every scripture is good advice. Okay, uh, this is not how we want to argue with our spouses. That's a whole different sermon, but it just, this isn't it. All right. It continues. Abram replied, look, she's your servant. Deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. I just want to pause here and go, okay. Some of you know this story already, but what what would we expect somebody to say to Hagar, finding her pregnant and alone, by some well, especially someone who knows everything that just happened. If Hagar posted this online in 2023, what would we expect her to be told? Come on, Hagar, you shouldn't have been so mean to Sarai. You got to know your place. Come on, Hagar, now you're pregnant and alone. What are you going to do? Where do you go from here? 
You got yourself into this mess, now what? The angel of the Lord said to Hagar, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Guarantee you that is not what Hagar wanted to hear in that moment. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. Can you hear the compassion in this story? That God crawled inside Hagar's skin, so to speak, saw things with her perspective, knew her thoughts, heard her feelings, felt her despair and her distress. The angel continues. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Now, I do not think that this was particularly encouraging to Hagar. At least it would not be particularly encouraging to me. Boy, let me tell you about your son. He's going to fight with all his cousins and all his siblings. This is going to be a disaster. Although I will say that somebody pointed out last night as we were going through this, uh, that there would be some comfort in simply knowing who your child was going to become. To be pregnant and alone and to hear, this is who your child's going to be. Uh, hopefully, would allow yourself some grace as a parent when at eight, you're like, really, you're fighting again? Like, and, all right, well, it's who God made you to be, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Uh, they were pretty excited about his ferocity. And, that, and maybe Hagar was too. Maybe this is, Hagar's like, yeah, bring on a fighter. Let's do it. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, what has scared me? Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? El Roi, the God who sees. She felt seen. That something in God's presence or words or simply hearing her despair, God recognizes God steps into the suffering and God takes action to help. Jesus is inviting us into a kingdom of compassion. This whole list of Beatitudes is the beginning of telling people about the kingdom of God and inviting them to come and follow and be a part of it. And he is inviting us into a kingdom of compassion. Now, is that everybody's experience of church? Uh-uh. But it sure would be nice if it was, because Jesus is inviting us to be and to lean into and to live out a kingdom of compassion. And it's compassion not just from the fellow peasants in this kingdom, but directly from the king himself. We are called to be compassionate and merciful because our God is compassionate and merciful. And we are called to be forgiving because our God is forgiving. Whenever we celebrate communion, as we did last week, we remember the forgiveness 
that we receive through Jesus, God's generous forgiveness of our sins. And we usually read some verse like this. This is Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood, Jesus says, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Now, Here's my temptation, and I don't think I've talked about this in a sermon before, but it has been rattling around in my brain for about a month, so it may have slipped out already. If so, I apologize. My temptation, I am learning, is to ask God to agree with me that we can minimize my sins. That we can say, look, this is not that big a deal. I say, okay, God, I I know I messed up, but can we just, can you and I just agree that this isn't that big a deal, right? I didn't kill anybody. I didn't have a fair. It's not that big of a deal, right? Can we just agree? Not, Not bad. What I'm inviting God to do is to come alongside me and essentially to say, you know what? You're right. That's not that big a deal. So I will love you anyway. And I'm actually undercutting my own experience of God's love. Because what God is inviting me to, and what God is inviting you to, is to come along and say, hey, uh, Josh, that's, that's a big deal. Um, that's sin. That's, that is a big deal. And as big a deal as that is, I love you anyway. However big that sin may be, Big, small, otherwise, it is a big deal. How much more significant to experience a love, not based on minimizing the wrong, but on saying, yes, that's wrong, and I love you. This is part of why we are called to not minimize either. We're not coming along and minimizing the hurt because to minimize the hurt minimizes the extent of the love that we give to say, okay, well, we'll just make it small so that my love can overcome it. And God is inviting us into a love and inviting us to share a love that says, no, that is a big deal. And I love you anyway. Now, I also know that many of us have the opposite temptation to say, nope, my sin is too big. It is too big a deal. There is no way that God's love is enough to cover this. Or, you know what? I asked for God's forgiveness when I was 12, but boy, my sins have just stacked on top of each other since then. And, I, and I've done things that, that every person in any church would blush at, and God just can't forgive me. In fact, I can't forgive myself. How could I expect an almighty God to forgive me? So let's go back to where we started. This is Romans 8, 38 and 39. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You are not unforgivable. 
Jesus made sure of that. And you are not unlovable. Earlier in Romans chapter eight, it tells us that God, our heavenly father, has adopted us as his children. That as we have stepped into the kingdom of God, seeking forgiveness and trying to align our lives with the king, that we're moved from being a creation of God to being a child of God, that he adopts us, that he chooses to love us. He doesn't have to. He chooses to love you. And nothing you've ever done separates you from that forgiveness and that love. He's inviting us into a kingdom where everyone who gives their allegiance to the king receives his generous forgiveness, including you. Jesus is inviting you and me. He's inviting us into a family of forgiveness. Jesus is inviting you and me into a family of forgiveness. His love is too great to leave you wallowing in a quest for perfection or pretending in a quest to minimize the hurt. And so he forgives you. And you receive his mercy and he calls all of his children to forgive, to see people as people that he loves and forgives. When we forgive, when we forgive others, when we see people as people, we are simply agreeing with how God sees all of us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And God longs to show you his mercy. Now, I think sometimes this is really hard for us to recognize, that God would long to show us his mercy. It's a lot easier for us to see our own mistakes or see the mistakes in others than to see that God really wants to, desires to extend his compassion and love and forgiveness to each of us. And so as we spend the next few minutes singing a couple of songs together, I want to invite us and challenge us to reflect on God's mercy. We'll sing together. We'll have some space in the middle to simply reflect, to ask for forgiveness if that's where we're at. Say, God, I I need your forgiveness. To thank God for his mercy, for his compassion. To ask him to show us in some way that he sees us. To experience his compassion or love or forgiveness in some new and deeper way. Sometimes it is helpful just to have somebody tell you that you are forgiven. So while we fully believe that you are fully capable of talking to and hearing from God on your own. Sometimes it really is just nice to have somebody pray over you and remind you that you are forgivable and forgiven. So if that would be helpful to you this morning, uh, Pastor Sky and I are gonna be in the welcome area in the back. You're welcome to come wandering back. If you have something to confess, you're welcome to, but you absolutely don't need to. We are all in need of God's compassion and forgiveness. And so we can simply pray that over. You can just come and stand in front of us and we will pray for you. Let's take this time 
to reflect, to remember, to take the time to really see and pay attention to God's mercy for us, that he longs to show you his mercy. So as the worship team comes up to lead us, let me pray for this time. Father God, we are grateful that you are a compassionate God that you are a God who is holy and just, who judges things as being wrong. But you don't look at the things that we've done wrong and seek to judge us, that your desire is to show us mercy. God, would you make us hearts and souls that receive your mercy, that are willing to recognize your mercy for us. Willing to recognize that that is your desire, to show us compassion and love and forgiveness. Father, would you forgive us for all the things that we know about and the things that we don't? Would you show us your mercy in some new, meaningful, powerful way? that we would have a greater experience of your love and would be in a greater position to share compassion, forgiveness, mercy, and love uh, with the people around us. We want to experience more of you and uh, your desires for us, including your mercy. In Jesus' name. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.